Hello, hello. Welcome to A Reason for Hope. We're very glad that you're joining us on this Valentine's Day. A Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast, which is guided for the most part by your questions on the Bible. That's right. You can send your questions in on our multiple live platforms, and I will be fielding those questions as they come on in, and we will delve into the Word to answer them. So if you have questions on the Bible, maybe a verse passage of Scripture, maybe something um, that you're going through in your life, you'd like a biblical perspective or things going on in the world, anything like that, as long as it's, uh, you know, it's a question, we're going to delve into the Bible to find the answers to that. That's what we're all about here at Reason for Hope. So we're very glad that you're joining us. Hope you're having a wonderful Valentine's Day. Hope you get to spend it with people that you love. I do, because look, I'm here with Sean and Peter, Sean Richards and Peter Martin. How are you guys doing? Good. Looking forward to the candy sales at Walgreens tomorrow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Get behind me, Satan. Can I say that on this show? <laughs> but that is a good opportunity. How are you doing, Peter? Doing good? Doing good, yeah. Doing good. Thanks for being being here today. Well, like I mentioned, Reason for Hope is a live broadcast. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Uh, mountain Standard Time or whatever time it is for you all around the world. Uh, we have people all around the world joining us, different time zones, through the wonders of the internet. Very exciting indeed. So we're very glad that you're joining us. Uh, Reason for Hope is an outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson, Arizona. So keep that in mind when you're trying to find us on the different platforms. You can go to our website. This is a great place to go, calvarychristianfellowship.com. We have the most kind of control over that being our own website. So always a great place to fall back on should you have technical issues anywhere else. If you follow that watch live tab right there, it will take you to our live page. You'll see a countdown to our next show and a schedule of upcoming events. But if we're live, you'll see the live video right there. There'll be a chat function. You can sign in with a username and be part of the show like that. Like I say, I'll be keeping my eye on all of these platforms. That's ccftucson.online.church or just follow the link from our website. Uh, you can go to Facebook as well, of course. Good old Facebook, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson or facebook.com slash ccftucson. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Facebook. Uh, please don't forget to like and share. We'd love to reach all your friends. Bring a friend with you. Um, so if you've been blessed by this ministry, uh, don't forget to, to like and share and all that good stuff. But Facebook, you can find us there, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you look in your app store as well, we have an app for your mobile device, whether it's iPhone or Android or your iPad, all those mobile devices. Just look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You'll see that white Calvary Chapel uh, logo. And that's us, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Also on Roku and Apple TV, we have a channel. That's pretty cool. You can watch us on your big screen if you have a smart TV or a device, a Roku or, Roku or Apple TV device. That's another way you can join us. On YouTube, the channel is A Reason for Hope. So look for A Reason for Hope on YouTube or youtube.com slash at A Reason for Hope 546. That's a great place to go as well if you missed the show. Uh, the archive videos are right there. Sean right here puts the questions that we covered in the um, info section so you can see what we covered or you can go back and re-listen to an answer. Uh, also, our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship are on there as well. So that's a good place for archive purposes. Uh, pastor Scott, who's with us here Monday, Wednesday, Friday usually. He is the senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. You can follow him on Twitter, Scott R4H. That's Scott R4H on Twitter. He posts highlights from the show and commentary on world events and uh, from a biblical standpoint, prophetic standpoint. There's just some really crazy and exciting things going on in the world, as you know, that definitely pertain to end times things and prophetic things. And so it's really interesting to follow on with Scott 
as he kind of guides us through that from a biblical perspective as well. So, um, and there's a few laughs in there as well, of course. So that's Scott on Twitter, if you'd like to follow him there. And then lastly, but not least, questionsforhope at gmail.com is our email address. That's questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on the radio, we're very glad you're joining us, but you are listening to a pre-recorded version of our show, usually yesterday's show. And so use that email address to send your questions and we'll get to those on our next uh, live broadcast and consider one of those other platforms when you're not on your drive time or whatever you happen to be doing. Uh, with the radio in the background, questionsforhope at gmail.com is the place to email us. Well, with all that being said, Peter, how would you like to pray for us today? We'd love to pray before we go any further. Sure, let's yeah, do it. it'd be great. Father, we love you. We're grateful for you and all the work that you do in our lives and the world. Would you pray for this time that we would be able to dedicate our minds and our hearts to you right now? to focus and study in, on your word and truth. Let that be the, the answer to all the questions that come in, and allow me and Sean to speak in a way that honors your word. In your name, amen. Mm. Amen. It's true. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, it's Valentine's Day today, and uh, you guys mentioned you wanted to maybe get into Valentine's Day a little bit the, uh, from a, an apologetic point of view or history point of view or whatever point of view you want to take. Yeah, just clarifying to people who are going to be hearing a lot of things on the internet about this just like every other holiday they say that it'll either have pagan origins or that it's satanic or it's uh, tied into some sort of fertility rite and they say that about easter they say it about christmas why not mm. about saint valentine's day uh first we'll start with the truth saint valentine's day is a fairly recent holiday that was revisiting a legitimate historical figure a christian by the name of valentine or Valentine, if you prefer. Uh, he was alive during the reign of Emperor Claudius, and according to the church historian Eusebius and others, he was willing to go against the Roman emperor's edict in performing marriage ceremonies for Roman soldiers when Claudius had forbidden that from his legions. So he was performing illegal marriages, so to speak. And they, of course, tried to imprison him, succeeded, and at the time of his imprisonment, St. Valentine, as the account goes, fell in love with the jailer's daughter, and they became pen pals of sorts, and thus the tradition of the writing Valentine letters. He signed his letters to the jailer's daughter from your Valentine, and thus the tradition of Holt. However, this wasn't something that started in the late third or the early third century the late 200s uh, it was something that was adopted actually very very recently in history like around the 1800s and while it is undoubtedly a scheme by marketing companies and cards to encourage this sort of commerce on one day above most others you could also you know send cards on birthdays and christmas and so forth but it is just something dedicated to relationships and entirely commercial however when it comes to all the sort of things you could be manipulated into doing for financial gain, I think sharing a sentiment to a loved one is one of the, the worst evils. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that then being said, that's about as true as the internet will give you. When it comes to some of the false information that we're given, you'll hear terms like Lupercalia thrown around, which wasn't on February 14th, it was on February 15th, and that matters because if you read anything as far as what the Festival of Lupercalia was about, <laughs> I, I don't know how you celebrate Valentine's Day, but I will judge you if that's your approach. 
Essentially, it was a shepherd's holiday where they would worship this wolf god by the name of Lupercal or Lupercalus, depending on who you talk to. And uh, in doing this, they would strip themselves naked, run through the town square, and uh, have people whip them as they ran in order to dedicate the blood to the god in order to essentially secure the well-being of their flocks. This wolf god would keep the wild wolves at bay, and you'd have a good sheep, I guess, retention rate that year. That was the gist of it. (laughs) Now, now when people obviously get a little bit of information, it ends up running farther than they ever could. They would say, oh, we'll see like the whipping that made red streaks on the Mm. tile, see red Valentine's Day. It's all pagan. No, and we need to basically be willing to call people on that. But when it comes to the actual problems at work and all this, and we don't have to get into too much more detail than it's already been discussed, facts of the matters are we know when Lupercalia was celebrated, we know how it was celebrated, it has nothing to do with Valentine's Day, but people will still share it for clicks. We have a higher priority, and that should be for the truth, and of course in sensitivity towards those who while maybe not as informed as they ought to be on these sort of days, maybe just feel uncomfortable with the whole facade, (laughs) if you will. And, of course, we as Christians will allow that freedom. Um, Peter, again, not to give you too much of a layup and take away maybe what you wanted to say, but what does Scripture have to say about people who either want to celebrate these days as neutral with an attitude as they may have, or even hostile but uninformed? Uh, yeah, so the, the main passage we go to is in Romans 14. Uh, and in Romans 14, Paul is specifically talking about the celebration of the Sabbath. And he says, Some men esteem one day above the other, and others esteem every day alike. Let each one be convinced in his own mind. So right there, Paul is saying, if you want to have special holidays, holy days, as you would like to call them, and to elevate a particular aspect of God's nature and to celebrate it, in a focused and intentional fashion, there's nothing wrong with that, and that could actually be a very good and uh, profitable thing, which I'll talk about in a second. But if you don't want to, if you look at holidays as being distractions and you would rather just treat every day alike, that is your prerogative as well. But just be sure, whichever way you're looking at it, you are doing it in a way that honors God. Now, uh, let me give you some benefits of Uh, celebrating holidays. So there are some people in this world who I think genuinely don't need to do this. I think that they're the vast minority, though. I think that the majority of people need reminders Mm -hmm. in order to get out of the drudgery and the routine of day-to-day life Mm -hmm. in order to remember some of the most important facets of their lives, Mm -hmm. right? So it is a good thing that we have a day on the calendar in which we focus in on, say, the Incarnation namely Christmas. Mm. It's a good thing that we have a day on the calendar in which we commemorate the resurrection. Not only because it stirs up, I know it stirs me up as a Christian to remember those things, to have a day where I'm just thinking about meditating on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mm. And some will say, well, every day is a day to do that. True, but you're not going to do that every day. You just won't. Yeah. Uh, we need reminders. Uh, and, and not only is it a good reminder for Christians, but it actually is something that can be very evangelistic because there are certain people that because the Easter and Christmas are such big things in our culture, they are now thinking about Jesus on those days, even though they don't have a relationship with him, which gives Christians an opportunity to start sharing things about Jesus. So there are very good facets to having a day that is esteemed above others. Now, just as a marriage counselor, what I'll tell you, 
is that this is vitally important. So some people think that romance has to be spontaneous, otherwise it's not real. Mm. And there's truth and falsehood within that. So there has to be a level of spontaneity within romance. You can't have everything planned out to a T, but there also has to be routine within romance. So if you're waiting for a moment of inspiration where God's going to strike you and and in a good way, right? Strike you in a good way and you're just <laughs> like, "I am going to take my wife out on a date and I'm going to get you a really elaborate present and it's going to be amazing." If you're waiting for that to happen, it won't happen. You need to actually stir up. This is the language that's used in Hebrews chapter 10. You have to stir up love and good works. They're things that don't just fall from the heavens. They're things that you have to intentionally work on, otherwise they will fade. So when you're new into a romantic relationship, romance is very easy. It's spontaneous. It happens very simply without any effort. But as time goes on, it's easy to, as I said, get into the routine of life and forget to perform romantic actions. And as that romance starts to fade, not only does it affect you as an individual, but it also will affect your partner. And it will start to create a drudgery within your relationship, and it will start to evaporate sensuality and passion that are very important components to a successful marriage. And by the way, romance is not something that is just for the man. It is something for the man and the woman. So sometimes in our culture, we can think that romance is just the man's job. It's just the man's job to be romantic. That's not true. Romance is something that is reciprocal. Men receive romance in a very different way than women do, but it is still a necessity for a man to receive romance from his wife. And it's important for your wife to be thinking about that. Another thing is if romance goes out of the marriage and your first thought is, it's my partner's responsibility to restore that romance, you're already on the wrong track. Mm. Romance is something that is intentionally derived from your will and your desire to serve the other person, Mm. right? When you're early on in the relationship, that happens naturally without thinking. But as the relationship evolves, you also have to evolve with it and you have to then be intentional about the things that you do. Otherwise, once again, it will dry up. Mm. Romance is not something that is received. It is something that is given. And as it's given, it's appreciated, and then it's received back. So you have to be very intentional about it. Days like Valentine's Day are good because they remind us about that necessity. Mm. They remind us like, oh, my relationship is special. I love my partner. I want to take a day and make it special for them. Now, me and my wife never actually celebrate Valentine's Day on Valentine's Day. That's why I'm here. Uh, you know, uh, we never actually do it on the exact day because, you know, restaurants are overly busy and things like that, but we always do something for Valentine's day. Uh, so we're doing it this weekend, but it's just an important thing for us. The way that my mind works and the way that my life is, I know that if days like this didn't exist, I would unfortunately let romance slip. So these are really, really good reminders. They're very important for us. And I think that we should practice them in the right way. What Paul is mainly warning about in Romans 14 is don't become legalistic about the pra- about these particular practices, mm. thinking I have to do it and everyone else has to do it. That's the problem. But seeing the wisdom in it and practicing it as a result of that wisdom, that's just, once again, that's prudence. That's something that you should do because it's good for you. Um, and another last quick thing going off of what Sean said, once you hear that, once you hear Sean's historical analysis of where Valentine's Day comes from, the question might be is, okay, well, if that's true and it's verifiable, why is it that everyone in our culture is saying that it's pagan in origin? Well, it's for two reasons. The first one is from the Christian church itself, and the second one is from the secular world. The secular world has great motivation 
to convince everybody that everything that the Christian church did that is good is actually pagan in origin because they want to deny Christianity all of the positive impacts that Christianity has had on the world. They're like, well, you know, you had the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, where the church crowded out everything and took all the amazing accomplishments of the Roman world. And then in the Renaissance, the rebirth, they had this beautiful time where they're remembering and reinventing the Roman world in Europe. And that was really the good thing. So you had the, the evil Middle Ages in which they took away Lupercalia and they, you know, didn't have any romance and no goodness and women were subjugated. And there's this like really Monty Python-esque view of the Middle Ages. And then the beautiful Renaissance happened and we remembered that love was a good thing. And we started reinstituting it in Lupercalia. And we just had to put a Christian name on it to make ourselves feel better about what mm. we were doing. And that was the idea. That and... Uh... The Muslims didn't control trade because of their occupation of the Silk Road, but they leave that out. That's right. So this is a false version of history. The truth is, is that Christianity provided a lot of good to the world, and it's actually the other way around. Christianity has provided a lot of benefit to the modern-day secularists, and they don't want to admit it, so they're the ones that are paganizing Christian contributions to their world. In other words, they don't want to acknowledge that Christianity has created these great boons and they actually like Valentine's Day and Christmas and Easter. They want to instead say, well, no, 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 you see, these were actually pagan. Christians didn't create them, so I don't have to thank Christianity for these things. These are pagan ideas, and Christianity just kind of subsumed them. That's just not true, as Sean has shown. Uh, and as he continues to show throughout every holiday, it's just not accurate. Now, Christians, for whatever weird reason, participate in this madness. Then they participate in this madness because they want to only do things that are exclusively Christian. They can't just see, as we talked about last week, the transcendental beauty of things, that anything that is beautiful, true, and good is a reflection of God's nature and therefore is glorious. They instead have to only relegate their Christianity to the confines of the church. And so anything that doesn't scream Christian for them is pagan. So if the holiday isn't exclusively perfectly Christian, then it must be pagan. And even if it is pretty much exclusively Christian, if I could find weird elements in it that aren't exactly Christian, it must be pagan in its origin, right? They, they can't have these good things that exist within the culture. They have to find the little nuggets in it that might speak of something that is not Christian in its past and use that as a reason to completely denigrate it. And that's just not a good way to live your life. Uh, a lot of the early church fathers pointed to a, a very important story in the book of Exodus. So in the book of Exodus, God commands the Israelites to plunder the Egyptians as they're leaving. And they take gold and jewelry and all sorts of other precious metals from them. Now you got to remember, a lot of these gold and jewelry were almost certainly relegated to pagan practices, right? These were made by pagan people, right? They're not going to just make, you know, beautiful, ornate jewelry that isn't pagan in origin. There's going to be pagan applications to everything that the Israelites are taking. Now, you remember, they took these gold articles and these silver articles and precious metals and stones into the desert. And the first thing they do with it is they erect a golden calf out of it. But then later... After they're rebuked for that, they take the same gold and precious metals, and what do they do? They erect the tabernacle with it. Now, what the church fathers pointed out is that when you're inside of a nation, you are able to take from it the goods that they have,
but be careful not to become corrupted by them. Mm. And if you're careful not to do that, you can then use those goods for the glory of God. And that's what a lot of medieval theologians realized, like Thomas Aquinas being the most predominant of them. I can take guys like Plato and Aristotle, and I can then look at what they said, line it up against the Bible and say which things agree with Scripture and what things don't. And I'm going to plunder the riches of the pagans and bring them into my Christian life in a way that benefits me and grows my community. But I'm going to be careful not to be corrupted by these particular influences. So even if, right, and this is all to say, even if Valentine's Day was pagan in origin, which it absolutely is not, Mm. that's still not enough of a reason to just totally throw it out the window. Mm. There are things in it that do reflect the beauty of God. Remember, marriage is the institution that God loves. That's in Malachi chapter 2. It is the closest and nearest reflection to God's love for his people that we have on this earth. And it has the only, it's the only relationship that has the propensity to bear children, which is kind of important for humanity's continuation on this planet. Mm. So all these things we can look at and say, is it a good idea to have a day where we celebrate romantic love? And the answer is, yes, it is, right? That is very Christian in its nature. And uh, if we're, like I said, careful, we can celebrate this and look at it because, again, the world has kind of crept into it, as Sean alluded to when he talked about Hallmark and the various jewelry uh, agencies. The the, the commercialism <laughs> alluded. has... Yeah, alluded or directly stated. <laughs> <Slightly>. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it, it's easy for commercialism to crowd in and to drown out the goodness of it. So, again, we have to be careful to not let the plunder of Egypt can become a golden calf, <laughs> if you want to use that metaphor. But if you're careful, you can turn it into something good. And it's something that I strongly encourage people to do. Yeah. And we had a comment on uh, Facebook from Rich that Valentine's Day is tied to the chocolate industry, which is probably, a good, <laughs> <laughs> it's probably very true. But anyway. So. And just as a quick side of a side note, uh, read Exodus 12 and verse 36 when it says that the people of Israel plundered the Egyptians. Wasn't they ran into their houses, took right. all their gold by violence? They had been unpaid slaves for four centuries and were being compensated voluntarily. So (laughs) just note that. Yeah, after God smacked them upside the head. (laughs) Yeah, a lot. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, maybe you guys are owed this (laughs) and they they were able to leave. Yes. But but yeah, so uh, I hope that helps. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation, but let's get into the questions. Sounds good. Thank you guys for sharing that. Um, uh, Well, a question came in through our email. I was going to make this joke about it's from Anonymous. Anonym- oh, Anonymous. It's from yeah. an Anonymous, but I won't do that joke. It's silly. Um, it's you a great question. It. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great question um, from the very romantic to <laughs> the details, I guess. It still is. <laughs> about, I guess so. Uh, contraceptives. What should be the Christian view on contraception? Is there anything in the Bible about that? I know there's a very wide views. I'll do the short answer. Peter can do the intelligent one. The short answer is no, just make sure it's not an abortive agent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So in the Bible, we actually don't see anything about um, contraceptives. Uh, Now, it's not that when we say the word contraceptive, what we're saying is some sort of family planning, right? You're, you're, You're intentionally avoiding getting pregnant. Now, prior to the pill or condoms being invented, there were means that people had to do that. Uh, not to get too graphic, but there is a methodology in which the man could actually avoid mm-hmm. impregnating his wife during the course of intimacy. And there's also a way that women can calculate 
when they are ovulating and avoid intimacy during that time in order to avoid getting pregnant. So these are things that have been well known throughout human history. They're things that people have practiced since uh, Jesus' time and before then. And there's not anything in the Bible that suggests that it's a bad thing, that this is a negative thing. Unless in a very, very specific set of circumstances. Right. So in in Genesis, there is a story of a man who practiced one of these methods. Again, not to get too graphic, (laughs) Bo would. But uh, yeah, Yeah. yeah, a, a guy named Onan practiced one of these methods. But the intention of him practicing one of these methods is it's not that he spoke with his wife and they agreed together to wait. It's that he himself didn't want to bear a child because if he bore a child, what would happen in that culture is that the oldest son would receive the inheritance from the father. If that oldest son were to die and not receive the inheritance, that means the inheritance is up for grabs. So what the next son was supposed to do was to bear a child and name that son the name of the oldest son, and then that child would inherit what was due to the original son that died. And the Um, inheritance was important because this was the salvation of mankind child line. That's right. So him putting a literal obstacle between all of our salvation, that's why God literally strikes him dead. That's right. So so Onan, uh, not seeing the theological implications of his behavior, but definitely seeing the selfish implications of his behavior is like, I don't want to bear a son because then he's going to get my inheritance. So he intentionally precluded himself from procreating with Tamar for that Is reason. That spilling his seed on that's that, right. Yeah. Genesis Genesis 38. Thanks for making it not a family <laughs> show, Dave. <laughs> well, <laughs> spilling seed, I think you can say that. I don't think that's been said since biblical times. I so. didn't know seeds were liquid. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah. So uh, Onan spilled the seed on the ground, avoiding, yeah, <laughs> avoiding uh, getting Tamar pregnant. Now, as Sean said, God struck him down, not because uh, avoiding pregnancy is a bad thing inherently, but because he what there were theological implications to what he was doing. Mm. It would have cut off the messianic line of Judah, which is where Jesus is from, which would have some pretty serious implications for you and me in our lives right now. But at any rate, uh, that's the only passage that people could point to that, that might suggest that God is opposed to contraception. Mm. But given the context, I think it's uh, a really mishandling of Scripture to suggest that that has anything to do mm. with preventative, uh, preventing pregnancy. It seems to be more in the case of Onan, why he was refusing to bear children with Tamar and what the implications theologically would be for that decision. That, that seems to be from the text what's going on. Um, now, throughout church history, there has been a debate about contraception, and the reason why is because there's been a debate about what's the purpose of sex. So for a lot of church history, the answer has, has been the purpose of sex is for procreation. That's its reason for existing. Mm. And therefore, if I were to block uh, or in some way deny the capacity for pregnancy, I would be misusing sex because that's the purpose of sex. Mm. Unfortunately, that's not biblical, right? The Bible doesn't say that that's the purpose of sex. That's a effect of sex, but it's not the purpose of sex. The purpose of sex is to reflect a very peculiar and unique aspect of God's intimacy with his people. So in the Bible, the analogy, the metaphor, as we talked about a little earlier, for God and his people is almost always that of a husband and a wife. Every now and then, God is depicted as a father to his people, 
but mm. more often than not, he's depicted as a husband for his wife. Mm. And the reason why is because, again, you know, when you have a child, there's fatherly love that's very beautiful and precious, but you don't really get to choose your children. Yeah, I didn't get to choose my kids. I didn't really pick them out of an assembly line and be like, yeah, I like those qualities and those qualities and put them in there. You know, No, no CRISPR um, technology? Yeah, no, no nothing <laughs> like that. Uh, it's just you kind of you get what you get and you, you learn. You did to, pretty good, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty cute. And, and it's your job as a parent to love your child and then to uh, hopefully shape them as best you can into the people you would want them to become, right, to give them the best possible opportunity to succeed and to know God. But again, you don't get to choose your kids, right? Your kids are chosen for you by forces beyond your control. When it comes to your partner, you get to choose them. You do get to choose them. You do get to select them and to grow in your romance towards them and grow in your intimacy towards them. And that is a better reflection of what happens between God and his people, right? God chooses us. He elects to be with us. And then we reciprocate by choosing God, giving him our faith and our trust, and then growing in our intimacy and love for him. So that is the better metaphor for how we relate to God, and that's why it's used more often than the metaphor of father to son. Now, in sex, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is that there's a component to our relationship with God that traverses or goes over the mere state of being in community or fellowship with someone. God, when he enters into a covenant with his people, he doesn't merely subside with us, meaning he doesn't just live life with us, he lives life in us. The Holy Spirit actually comes within the spirit of the believer. That's something that we don't fully grasp or understand. It's really hard for us to comprehend, but that's what the Bible says. What Paul says is that sex becomes a physical manifestation, it becomes a physical representation of that spiritual reality. That when a man enters into a woman, that is a physical representation of the spiritual reality that God has entered into his church. It's hard for us to grab, it's hard for us to understand, but that's what's going on. Beyond that, it is also a physical representation of what the marriage as a whole is. That as I have given the entirety of my life, my purpose, and my being to my wife in the act of marriage, now I give all of me in transparency and vulnerability in the act of sex. So sex becomes the representation of the marital covenant as a whole. So for those reasons, it becomes very beautiful. But notice, in, in all those things that I'm showing, children can be a part of that, right? Obviously, children become a manifestation of the one flesh unity I have with my wife because they bear both my image and hers, which is very beautiful and precious. And children are a manifestation of the relationship we have with God because God enters into the believer and then through that believer, we share his reality with other people, and they come to God through us. Mm. They become spiritual children. It also is a reflection of the Trinity, in which the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are three and they are one. And in the same way, the man is one with the wife, and the child is in the body of the woman. So you actually have three entities in one, and all bearing each other's image. And there's also the concept of God creating in his image and giving us the capacity to create in our image. Mm. So there's a lot of beautiful metaphors and, and manifestations there. But again, having children is not the purpose of sex. It's a byproduct of sex, but it's not the purpose of sex. For that reason, there is no, there's nothing inherently wrong with utilizing contraceptives. Uh, you're not denying the telos or the final purpose or 
uh, intent of sex by doing that. You are simply taking one component of sex and you're saying, I'm going to utilize wisdom in order to best plan out my family in, the, in a way that I feel like would steward my resources in a good way and honor God. Now, I think we could go too far in the modern era. There, there's many Christians, I want to be careful because there are many Christians today, uh, young people who are child-free, quote-unquote, and what that means is that they have no intent of ever having children, not because they can't, because they simply don't want to. They don't want to take on that burden within their life. They would rather go on vacations and have bigger bank accounts. Now, that is a result of our culture. There's a lot of stuff I could say about that. Mm. But just for the sake of this conversation, it's very clear within the Bible that the ideal of marriage is that children are made. Mm. Uh, that's in Malachi chapter 2. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Mm. Right? It is very clear in the Bible that the ideal of marriage is that children are a byproduct of that love between a man and a woman. Mm. doesn't mean it always happens. Right? There are things that can preclude that. Uh, a couple can be sterile. They, they can lack the ability to have children of their own. They could be called to a dangerous mission field in which having children would not be smart mm. or wise. Right? So there, there are reasons why that ideal cannot be achieved by a couple. But that's, that doesn't take away from the fact that that's the ideal. They become exceptions because of external circumstances. It still remains the ideal that, that parents have children. And, you know, speaking as a relatively new parent, I'll tell you, kids are good for you, right? They, they humble you. They make you <laughs> really well. They're very good at that. And they really help you work on your selfishness, right? And they unite you. To something so, that wait a second, how are they good for you? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds all really I mean, bad yeah. to me. <laughs> I'm trying to see the good in. I kind of want to be self-focused, and <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be humbled. So right. why would I want? Kids? Yeah. <laughs> and it also unites you more in a very beautiful way to God's plan and purposes that transcend time. You know, through my children, I now have a legacy that will outlive me in a real way. They will carry on my name. They will carry on my legacy. It's it's a really, really beautiful picture of what mm -hmm. God's doing through the church as a whole. So uh, kids are good. Like We should want kids. I think a culture has made us dislike kids in unfortunate ways or see kids in a really warped or twisted fashion, mm -hmm. which I think we need to recapture as Christians. But altogether, there's no, again, to answer the question very simply, there is nothing wrong with contraceptives. But as Sean said, as long as they're not abortive agents, right? So there are certain contraceptives, if you want to use that word, that they don't block pregnancy like a condom uh, or like the previous natural methods that I mentioned, but they instead prevent uh, implantation. So mm. in other words, a, a couple conceives a child, an embryo, mm. and that child is denied utilizing a pill it's denied implantation in the mother's uterus and dies, mm. right? So that would be wrong because now you're actually killing, you are killing the child you just created, right. where the other methods, they just prevent uh, the creation of, a, of life. Yeah, so. yeah. Great, thank you. That's a great question. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. Uh, don't forget to send your questions in on the platforms you're viewing us if you have a question. I've still got 20 minutes left on the show, so do send that in. A question from uh, Nico or Nico. Uh, does God really desire to save all? The Bible says that God is willing that none would perish. Does that really mean none, that he decides to save all? And some people believe that that's just referring to certain elect. Uh, but Nico uh, refers to Second Peter uh, 3.9 and First Timothy 2.4. So does God desire to save everyone, or is it just an elect 
Well, the impulse. challenge to this is it essentially demands one of two <clears throat> extreme conclusions, neither of which are biblical. <clears throat> because God desires, therefore, everyone's going to get saved. Right. We call that the cult of universalism, that even Satan's going to get saved because, after all, God desires all to be saved. Yep. Are you denying God his right. prerogatives? He gets what he wants. He has the ability. He has the desire. Therefore, he will without taking any other factors into consideration. Mm. Then on the exact other end of the spectrum, there's the doctrine of double predestination, which most Calvinists would distance themselves from, and saying that God desires all to be saved, but the all there doesn't mean all. That the fact of the matter is that the ones God has predestined for salvation Mm. are the only ones who will be saved, and they're the only ones that matter. The people who were predestined for hell there was no saving them. God created them literally to go to hell, and right. you need to be content in that because God's glorified through your condemnation. Mm. Neither are a biblical concept, and we need to be aware of that. So going off of what we do know from Scripture, the revelation of God's character to us, what can we soundly conclude? The desire, as you stated in the passages, that God does not desire any to perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, quoting, by the way, Ezekiel 33 and verse 11, Old and New Testament policies, but noting that the heart of God is for mankind's salvation, how did he go about that? Mm. Coercion or an opportunity? And I think what meets, not in the middle as a virtue in of itself, but what actually supports the most data, is a statement Jesus made in Matthew 23 and verse 37, where speaking to the nation after they resoundly rejected him, He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And then tells them, See, your house has left you desolate. For I say to you, you shall not see me no more. You shall see me no more till you say, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." That's of course quoting the Old Testament as well. What's important to note about this is that there are two involved parties in this relationship. God's willingness for us to be saved is assumed. Mm-hmm. Our willingness to be saved is a work of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. and one that we can either receive or reject on the basis of our well, participation in the process. God, of course, uses people through evangelism. God uses his word. God uses the trials we go through in this life. He may even use personal revelation should that be needed. But if it ultimately comes down to it, no one's going to stand on judgment day and go, well, fulfilled programming, inserting hell protocols now. We will have officially and definitively made our decision to act either in alignment with God's will for us or in rebellion against his will for us. His will is for us to be saved, to be ransomed, to be redeemed, to be taken from our default state of rebellion. But he's also given us enough dignity as sentient creatures bearing his image to say yes or no to that relationship. And again, for those of you listening who may not have made that decision or are still on the fence about the matter, understand that you've been given that respect. That in understanding the facts of history, we know that Jesus of Nazareth is not only a real person, not only did the things the gospel said that he did, but the most significant was a death and resurrection. Not just for him to flex, but so that we would know that those who believe in him have the same promise. 
that if I live, you will live also, he said to his followers. And we have it on multiple biographical accounts to support that. What's also important to note is that when we ask the question, what must I do to be saved? He's made it so simple, even we can figure it out. Mm-hmm. said, when they were asking him, how may we work the works of God? He replied, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus, in reference to himself, Jesus said in John chapter 17, that the one whom you have sent has glorified you. Now glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. We know in Isaiah that God doesn't share his glory with anyone. He has personally involved himself in our redemption and has done so through taking what we all owe to him on himself. If there is a debt to be paid that involves death, regardless of the quantity of sins, any separation from the source of life is death by definition. He has paid that ransom so that you could return to him freely. There is justice and there is mercy. We could either get what we deserve or we can be freed from what we deserve. And if we understand that God's prerogative, God's desire for us to be redeemed literally brought him through a full Roman crucifixion with you in mind, there's one of two responses, contempt or gratitude. Mm. And that's what's ultimately in your hands. And how we receive it is a simple acknowledgement of that fact and living accordingly. We usually call people through a prayer, and again, there is no fancy ceremony or uh, ritualistic way of going about this. You don't need a pastor present. You just need the Spirit, and we, of course, recognize that as any desire for mm-hmm. salvation. First Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3 says, No one calls Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't be aware of our need for salvation. We wouldn't care about the, our state before God if right. it wasn't for God's direct intervention in our hearts. So if you're in any way, consciously thinking to yourself, you know, what God did for me, that's something. That wasn't nothing. That mm-hmm. wasn't a wasted effort. That impresses me. I'm, I'm moved by that almost. Mm-hmm. Understand that that's a miracle in of itself. Dead bodies don't have these little twitch moments where they're just like, oh, I was conscious for a second there. Mm-hmm. God's giving you the opportunity to embrace the life that he died to give you. But if that is not something that is in your list of priorities, understand he has given you that liberty as well. So going and noting to the question, does God desire? Yes. Does God cause? As we talked about in Paradise Lost, two different topics. Mm -hmm. But if on the other hand we ask the question, well, what must I do to be saved? It's been the same from the time of Solomon all the way to the time of Jesus and even today. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess, literally to say the same thing, that Jesus is Lord, acknowledge that he is who he proved himself to be, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Mm. It's that simple, and we encourage everyone here to not only who have done so, to encourage others to do the same, but those who haven't done so, to do so while you still have time, because uh, we, you know, not to laugh at something morbid, but it's a force of habit, uh, got a phone notification of a hazmat spill that took place not mm-hmm. like five miles from where we are. Yeah. Obviously, the truck driver didn't make it, and he, uh, of course, would have had problems if he did. But all these people exposed to these toxic chemicals and stuff, they were just going about their business that mm-hmm. day. Then all of a sudden, they've got the forbidden jacuzzi in front of them, and they don't know what to do with their own skin at this point. Do I have mm-hmm. to take a power wash or a chemical bath or something? What's going on? What's all happening? We've gone to outreaches where you know power lines have just fallen in the wind and almost 
flung a person like 15 feet into the air if they had not been two inches from where they were standing. Mm. We aren't promised a tomorrow, but we were given a gift called today. And what you do with that is either going to make all the difference in eternity for the better or for the worse. You can align with God's desire for your salvation or rebel against him to your own detriment, but he's given you that choice. Mm. Very good. Very good, Sean. Anything to add to that, Peter? No, it's good. No. All right, Nico, well, I hope that helps you out. It's definitely something that ultimately we have to entrust to God, who is the judge, you know, how this all fits together. But that was, I mean, a great answer to the question, Sean. Thank you. A uh, question from Yari here. Um, back back onto the things romantic, um, be it Valentine's Day today. Is there such thing as the one? And a follow-up question, when looking for the right one, how do I become the right person or the right one, which is a good question to ask too. So is there such thing as the one, finding the one? I know I, I grew up with that ingrained in my head. You've got to find the one. There's the one. Soak it up in a hot tub with your soulmate. Yes. <laughs> Not the forbidden hot tub. Yes, the forbidden hot tub. Yeah, biblically, no. So, oh. so yeah. <laughs> um, when you go through the Bible, first of all, you got to remember that uh, in the biblical days, it was betrothal. It wasn't dating as we know it today. Now, it doesn't mean that it, you know it's not how some people in modern days portray it. That there was no amount of getting to know the person, or you know, your family's united. There was that, but for the most part, it was betrothal. It was just arranged marriages that happened within particular communities, and that's never denigrated within the Bible. So the Bible never promotes that as being the ideal system, but it also doesn't say that it's a bad system. Now, from the perspective of the one, that would be a very bad system because that means that parents are taking uh, steps to basically thwart fate. But what we believe as Christians is that there is a such thing as love, there is a such thing as romance and desire, but these things have to be cultivated between two consenting partners, mm -hmm. right? So I have to make decisions to be with somebody, and I have to make decisions to make that relationship work. And over time, that relationship might fail, and sometimes that's going to be my fault, sometimes it's going to be my partner's fault, and sometimes it's going to be a combination thereof. But if I enter into any type of romantic relationship with someone, I should be doing everything in my power to, uh, without sinning, without falling short, without compromising my values, to make that relationship work and to make that relationship glorify and honor God and his love for his people. That's the concept that we have in the Bible. Mm. The idea of the one is the idea that there is a perfect one out there for you, that if you find them, your relationship will just kind of work out. Mm. And you know that you've found the one when you really just connect with them. This is such a pervasive ide ideology mm -hmm. that's completely unbiblical, but it's, it's appealing because what it essentially says to you is that there is someone who will just fit directly into your life, as opposed <laughs> to the way I portrayed it, which is no one's just going to fit directly into your life. You have to shape yourself to be a part of someone else's life, right? You have to actually alter your behavior, your character. You have to work on yourself, mm -hmm. and you have to cultivate a relationship together with someone in order to make a relationship work. It's a lot of hard work. Yeah. As but, opposed to the hook in this concept, the soulmate is if it right. doesn't fit, right? if they aren't perfect and there is no conflict, or there rather is, that means they weren't the one. And I could ditch them. Yeah. 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 I got to find yeah. the right Even one if I'm because, married. Even if I'm married, if I find someone I connect with right. better than I connected with yeah. my spouse. I, mar I married the wrong person. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. what we want to avoid in this mindset. And that is... That is Absolutely untrue. Now, if what you're saying by the one is no one ever means it this way, but I'm hey, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you are on your Bible and good in theology. If what you mean by the one is God is sovereign, 
God is sovereign over every decision in my life, and he has a plan and a purpose for me in every facet of my being, including who I marry. And that means that God already knows the person that I'm going to end up with. Right? If that's what you mean by the one, that's good theology. Mm. But that's not what people tend to mean. <laughs> they, they mean that God has prepared someone specifically for you. Mm. That's just not true. That's not accurate. Uh, there are going to be temperaments that you get along with better. There are going to be people that you're going to develop relationships with easier. Obviously, you might, uh, if you date, if you uh, go out with various types of people, you'll realize that you're going to click with certain personalities better than others. But sometimes if we're shallow, what that means is that we're taking qualities that aren't necessarily deal breakers, things that we just don't prefer, and we're mm. putting that as a reason not to work on the relationship and to break up. Mm. That's shallow. What we should instead be doing is saying, okay, I obviously want to be with someone that I connect with and that I'm able to cultivate that relationship, but I'm going to have these standards of behavior that actually matter, mm. right? That actually matter, not well, you know, they didn't laugh at all my jokes, or well, you know, they smell a little funky, or well, you know, their their ambitions are a little bit different than mine, right? Those are shallow reasons to break up with someone, right? You want to have good standards that are are real. What are their values? Mm. What are their what are their aspirations? Do they align with mine, right? If their aspirations are to move to Florida and I want to stay in Tucson, that might not work, right? So you need to have real things that couldn't coalesce with one another in order to justify breaking up. I don't think that breaking up should be casual. I don't like the idea of casual dating because it does set up a mentality of I'm just going to select individuals that better fit my needs. And if I don't like you, then I can kick you to the curve. And I especially dislike dating apps because dating apps enable you to, in the most shallow terms possible, pick out prospective partners and to date multiple people, quote unquote, mm -hmm. date multiple people at the same time where you're communicating with multiple different partners at the same time and selecting the ones that best fit what you want, right? That's a key to becoming increasingly selfish in your selection yeah. as well as narcissistic. Now, when you said at the end of the question, I believe it, was, uh, it, was, it wasn't about the how one, it was how do I become the right one? Mm -hmm. that, that's, a, that's a much, uh, I, I think the question as a whole is very good, but I, I think that that second or latter part of the question is more on the right track of what we should be thinking. Right. Right, the idea of how do I become compatible? How do I become the kind of person that could uh, make a relationship work? Well, there are certain virtues that allow for people to make a relationship work. The first one is integrity. Uh, integrity means that you are a whole person. We get the word uh, if, if, you know, integer from you know from mathematics. Integer is a whole number as opposed to a fraction or decimal. Mm -hmm. uh, integrity means I'm becoming a whole person. I am the same way with you as I am with other people. People who are two-faced tend not to be able to make long-term relationships work, even if they're two-faced in a, uh, a genial sense, meaning that I just, I'm with this group of friends and I have this type of personality that comes out and I'm with this group of friends and I have this type of personality that comes out. Even that precludes you from having long-term relationships with uh, another person, lasting ones. The reason why is because when you integrate yourself with a singular person, they become a part of your life. And if your personality shifts, depending on your the people you're around, that's very difficult for them to keep up with. And it might end up destroying the relationship. So work on your integrity. Am I the same person in church as well as out of church? Am I the same person at college as I am at work? Am I the same person with my family as I am with my friends? Right? Am I working on being a person of integrity? This also has to do with honesty right? Don't, uh, the idea of saying what is true and meaning what you say, 
That's very important. Work on becoming a clear communicator with the people that you're around, right? When in my relationships, do people understand what I'm saying or do I consistently miscommunicate or misunderstand other people in a way that causes friction and tension within my relationships? Mm. That's something that you need to work on. Uh, another thing is flexibility. Are you an overly rigid person that can't compromise on things and can't see other people's perspectives? Or are you someone that is flexible, right? You could actually listen to where other people are coming from and maybe move a little bit to accommodate someone else's wants or desires. Uh, or are you overly flexible to the point where you're such a people pleaser that you'll do whatever anyone else says just to gain their approval, mm. even compromise your values? That's something you need to work on, mm. which means that you would need to work on your assertiveness, mm. being able to be direct with people as opposed to hinting at it and being passive when you don't get what you want, mm. right? So that's another quality you need to develop, assertiveness, direct communication, that kind of thing. Uh, another thing that I would encourage people to work on is their goals, right? So once again, your partner is an important part of your life, but they're a partner with you. They're a helpmate, as the Bible puts it. That means you got to be moving in a direction. You should be having goals within your life. If you're someone who's just sitting around waiting for a partner to come into your life, and you're, you know, living at your parents' house, you don't, you have a, a, a part-time job somewhere, and you have no ambition whatsoever, you know, a partner's not really going to fit into that very well. You have mm -hmm. to be moving in a direction. So be thinking about what you want to do career-wise, work towards it, be diligent, be hardworking, right? These are attractive qualities to prospective partners, and someone can actually fit into it. But most importantly, have spiritual goals, right? How are you doing in your relationship with God? Is that important to you? to develop your relationship with God, to develop your dependency upon God and the way that you see God and the way that you behave in a godly manner, right? That should be an important part of your goal system. And uh, the final thing that I say is try to find someone who is in a community that is near or approximate to yours, hmm. right? If you find someone totally outside of your community, it's very difficult, right? The less commonality you have in your community life, the more difficult it is to integrate those communities. Mm. So just one simple example, if you go to two completely different churches, not two different churches is in different parts of town, but two different churches is in completely different communities, right? Pentecostal and you go to a Baptist church. That's going to take a lot of compromise. Mm. It's very difficult to then bring in a completely different community and cultivate one together. Mm. You'll almost likely have to both leave your prospective churches and find one that's more neutral, mm. right? Which would be Calvary. No, that's, <laughs> a, that's a right between Pentecostal and Baptist. But, you know. That's why we're yeah, here. That's why we're here. To these bring dumb people, people that marry someone yeah. from other countries or whatever, yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry, carry on. But yeah, try, try to find someone in your approximate vicinity. That's good. Because that helps you integrate easier into each other's lives. And beyond that, Make sure that as you're growing in your relationships, work on your friendships and your family relationships because someone who doesn't have those and is just so desperate for romance and they're just that's all they're thinking about, they need to come into something. And if you don't have community support or a community that cares about you, you're not going to have someone that's going to actually support your relationship. So you're going to want to work on your relationships that you have right now. Be diligent in those relationships. Make them as functional as possible. And then when someone romantic comes into your life, you will have a support system to encourage and cultivate that relationship in a way that's beneficial to you and them. Uh, so those are just some basic things. Uh, there are more that I could say, but we're out of time. Yeah.
That was that was amazing. <laughs> we should make that the question of the week. That was so seriously so good. Um, such good things to to be focusing on. Yari, I hope that helped you out. If it didn't help you out, I don't know what's wrong with you because it helped me out. It was <laughs> amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, <clears throat> for anyone new to uh, Reason for Hope, we have someone on our website. Um, Love hearing y'all is your name. Um, they said, I, I'm assuming it's a she, I'm guessing that, but anyway, um, that was the absolute best answer on contra contraception I have ever heard, thank you, and she's been very encouraging and complimentary, but um, we're glad that you're joining us and found our broadcast. Um, we're all on staff here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. You mentioned Sean, he mainly is our student minister, but we all have wear a lot of hats, but um, Sean is the son of Scott Richards, who's our senior pastor here. Peter Martin um, does a lot of our counseling here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. I'm the music minister here. So all the people you'll see as we switch out during the week, um, we're all on staff at Calvary Christian Fellowship. Sean is probably the most consistent. You're pretty much always in that seat unless unless you've come across a hazmat situation or something like that. But, um, <laughs> they actually had to negotiate me down to take me Mondays off. Yes, yeah, me too. Yeah, we're here, part of the same. I'm off Mondays as well. But um, yes, we're all on staff here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. We're very glad that you've found our broadcast and thank you for your encouraging words. Um, yeah, we're out of time for today. We're with you Monday through Friday. What's the day Tuesday? Yeah, Valentine's Day. So we'll be back tomorrow. Uh, Pastor Scott should be here and myself and Sean, of course. We'll be back with more of your questions. So don't forget questionsforhope at gmail.com, questionsforhope at gmail. Send your questions there. We'll get to them at the top of the broadcast tomorrow. Or don't forget just to join us on these platforms. We'll be back. Same time, same places, maybe different faces. Thank you, guys. We will see you then. God bless you. Have a wonderful evening and rest of your Valentine's Day. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.